Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. Our guest on today's episode is Sir John Hegarty, the British ad man extraordinaire and the industry's favourite contrarian. John is the founder of BBH, which is probably one of London's best established and most successful ad agencies. And he's the brains behind decade-defining campaigns for Levi's, Audi, British Airways and Johnny Walker. This is an episode from the Gentleman's Journal Archive, if we have such a thing. We recorded it back in the summer of 2018, but for various reasons, it's only just seen the light of day. Thankfully, Hegarty's advice, oracle-like insight and his counterintuitive outlook are pretty timeless. In this episode, we spoke about how humour can always save a campaign, about the birth of Flat Eric, if you remember him, about how actually you don't learn much from your failures and about how storytelling gave birth to the modern human race. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. John, thanks very much for joining us. As I was rushing through Soho, I was trying to imagine what it would have been like kind of in the in the 1970s when you were just starting out here. And I wonder what you were like as a young man back then. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Soho in the 70s was very, very seedy. Right. I mean, it really, really was down on its heels. You know, it was the sort of tail end of strip clubs and, you know dodgy places with women offering all kinds of services. I mean, you really didn't... I mean, Meard Street, which is just around the corner here, which is now very lovely and very elegant, you would not walk down. Right. I mean, it really was. <laughs> but actually, I quite liked it. I love that sort of thing. I've been coming, you know, to Soho. I know Soho. I've been coming here since the sort of late 50s, really. My mm. brother was at um, St Martin's, which was in the Charing Cross Road. And obviously, you know, one drifted into Soho when we we met and we would go out somewhere to a coffee bar right and uh, how daring we were uh, but so I my, my relationship with Soho has been very long and um, uh, I love it as an area yeah and was it always a very creative place with their kind of small... it's always been that really Soho uh, you know it's always been a place for misfits for you know outsiders artists uh, people who aren't you know a part of you know, conventional society. Mm. And I, you know, I've always said, you know, as you cross over the road from Oxford Street and you walk into Soho Street and into Soho Square, you just feel different. Yeah. Uh, and it's got that magic to it still. I mean, people complain that it's changed. Well, of course it's changed. It's always been changing. But at its heart, um, it's an incredibly vibrant, creative uh 
square mile, something like that. Somebody did say, actually, there are more creative people per square foot in mm. Soho than anywhere else in the world. Wow. Which is a great claim, and I, <laughs> I will go on making that claim. Yeah. So. Impossible to prove, but... Impossible to disprove. <laughs> That's true. No, actually, I think when you looked at, you know, if you took in the sort of those that touched it so you've got the BBC almost being here you had you know frame store you had all kinds of film services this was the centre of the film industry mm. advertising became very much part of it architects were here theatre all along you know um, Shaftesbury Avenue was part were part of it so you really had a lot of disparate creative industries touching and clashing yeah. which is what I think makes it you know equally makes it equally exciting which is terrific of course and what was your first kind of job in those creative sectors in my well I, I sort of went to my background was I, I, I went to um, art school I wanted to be a painter I went to art school realised I was not going to be the next Picasso comes as a bit of a blow that but you know um, but I loved ideas and I was advised by a wonderful art teacher I had, Peter Green, to go to um, design school. You know, maybe that's what I should be pursuing. And But he said, don't... I was then at Hornsey, Hornsey College of Art, and, and he said, go to uh, London College of Printing, which is now the London College of Communications. They had a very, very good design department, but also you would learn about printing. So you would, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd understand the process of printing as well as then studying graphic design, which mm. I did. And whilst I was there studying graphic design, which I, I sort of enjoyed, but, you know, I was always interested in the idea, you know, and shades of blue are great. You know, I, I'm, I can get, you know, sort of vaguely excited about different shades of blue, but nobody went to war over a shade of blue, did they? They never, the world isn't going to be changed by going, I think we should make things light blue as opposed to dark blue. And I was always fascinated by ideas and found designers, by and large, kind of wanted to go back where I'd come from and sort of almost be artists. And I was interested in communication. And then it was at that moment, another wonderful teacher called John Gillard showed me all the great work coming out of New York, out of Dordan Birnbeck, the wonderful Mad Men era. Um, And uh, it was like, really was like a, a light being thrown in a darkened room. Yeah. Suddenly I could see exactly what I wanted to do. All these wonderful Volkswagen ads and Avis and, you know, uh, uh, brilliant, brilliant ads that, that were kind of smart, intelligent, but also very inclusive. Yeah. And that brilliant ability to include as well as holding on to some sense of uh, integrity. And Birnbach's great line was, you know, tell the truth, just make it interesting. It was, a, you know, he invented modern advertising. So that's how I got into the business. And my first job then was at Benson and Bowles, which was in Knightsbridge, very respectable. Wow. <laughs> I, went, I went respectable for a, a very short period of time, but I was there for about a year and a half or so. And then got, I was a junior actor there junior art director there, then got fired. Right. Why did you get fired? Well, I was a pain in the ass um, because, you know, I came into the industry at a time when a whole generation of people were coming into it who wanted to be in advertising. By and large, creative people at that time really didn't want to be in advertising. They were novelists trying to earn a few pennies or they were painters who... You know, had to make some money, so they would do a bit of advertising and stuff like that. And they were quite cynical about it. 
Whereas people like me and a whole generation, not just me, were coming into it saying, no, we, we love this, and, and, but we want to make it better. And that, that was part of the revolution that changed advertising in this country. But we learnt it from America, we learnt yeah. it from New York. Was the 1970s the kind of golden era for advertising in Britain? Well, you know, I'm always, I'm always wary of talking about golden eras. And, you know, in fact, I came in in 1965, so, you know, by 1970... It, you know, you've got to remember the 60s didn't really happen in advertising till the 70s. Okay. Because, you know, <laughs> because, you know, the whole revolution in the 60s was with music, was with fashion... It was in writing, it was in filmmaking. And this was kind of being driven by a young audience. They were making the change. I mean, Carnaby Street was full of people under the age of 25. Yeah. You know, so it was... But advertising was controlled by large corporations and they kind of didn't get what was going on until about 10 years afterwards. Most corporations are 10 years behind what's happening. And then so it began to change in the 70s. You know, people talk about the 80s as being a, a golden period. I don't like, you know, I always think that's a very defeatist hmm. kind of term in a way, or phraseology, because it assumes that it's been yeah. and that there isn't going to be another one. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm always say I'm cursed as an optimist and, and it's about you making a difference, you making a change. And one person can change things. You know, revolutions happen on the edges. They don't happen in the centre. Mm. They happen on the edges. One person does something, somebody else sees it, they change it, somebody else sees that and they change and then all of a sudden you have a movement. Yeah. So I, I'm a great believer in we'll have another golden age some other time. When? Not sure. <laughs> Who were the change makers back then then? Well, we had wonderful people. I mean, I started working with Charlie Saatchi very, very early on. Charlie was a great, um, a great thinker. Um, we had a brilliant agency called Collie Dickinson Pierce. Colin Millwood, who was driving change there. You had people like Alan Parker, the filmmaker there. Hugh Hudson was working with them. Um, Tony Scott, Ridley Scott. These people were all having a tremendous impact on the industry. And they were changing the way, you know, people viewed it. And it was suddenly being seen as a place where you could work, where you could do great things, where people, when you did great work, wanted to watch it, they wanted to see it, they sought it out, they, 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 they talked about it, and it became a cultural force. And that's what made it truly wonderful. But I think at its core, advertising is trying to make a brand about culture. Yeah. And that's what makes it more successful. So it becomes more important. You know, one I always like to quote is Marmite. You know, you love mm. it or hate it. We now talk about somebody as being Marmite. Well, you know, that brilliant idea has elevated, what is this face here? A bloody, you know, yeast spread. You know, yeah. It's hardly into something, it's elevated into something very, very important. And that's the genius, I think, of advertising. Yeah. That it can elevate something. And there were a few things, of course, in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, which you and BBH raised, I guess, to that, that level of culture. Yeah, I think we, we did, you know, things like Audi, um, uh, you know, with Vorsprung de Technik and, and making people realise that, you know, you, we could admire the fact that Germany built great cars and we, you know, we didn't have to mention the war. And yeah. so we changed that point of view. The research said, don't do it, um, which they did. Fortunately, we had two great clients at Audi who said, this is rubbish because we are a German brand. 
you know, we're German car. Why shouldn't we tell people we're German? So we broke that taboo, yeah. which was wonderful. Then, of course, Levi's was um, a huge success, which kind of changed music. It changed fashion. It, 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 it invented the boxer short or reintroduced the boxer short, which was a great story. Um, and then we were working on acts about, you know, uh, giving young men confidence when they were mm. coming into puberty. And then we launched Hagen Dazs and then Boddington's. And yeah. it was a great, yeah, we were doing some, some wonderful work. And, and, you know, I look back at some of the, you know, there's a great thing about the Me Too movement now. And I can show you ads we did for K Shoes in 1989, where the woman is the hero. Uh, we did a brilliant ad for Pretty Polly, which made stockings, where you know uh, the woman breaks down in her car driving along what is or what seems to be a beautiful Jaguar uh, along the Corniche. The car breaks down, she opens it up, the fan belt's broken, so she just sits down in the car, takes off her stocking, and repairs the car and drives off. You know, we were, you know, we were re- in many ways. You know, I look at that and people talk about, oh, you know glass ceiling for women we were you know way ahead of our time in that sense of putting women in the forefront and turning them into the heroines that they deserve to be yeah and that's where I think advertising can take a lead it can do things which are you know um, uh, challenge the status quo don't be ordinary be different be daring yeah and one of the adverts that you mentioned there that came to define I think a lot of your work was the kind of black sheep campaign for Levi's um, how did that come about? And were the client happy with that at first? <laughs> it, you know, it was the very, very first piece of creative work we did at, um, uh, for Levi's. And uh, we, it, it was interesting. We won the, we won the business and, and they very quickly said to us, oh, by the way, you know, we booked all these posters. We're going to launch Black Denim. And we said, fine, you're great. And they briefed us and it was going to be a poster campaign. And uh, so, you know, I thought, well... Black Levi's, what does that represent? Most people are wearing blue, so, you know, it's about difference. It's about being different. So I did this thing of uh, all these sheep going in one direction with a black sheep going in the opposite direction, an image we all know, and um, just Black Levi's. And then we added when the world zigs, zag. And and, uh, I remember presenting it. (laughs) And, of course, this was the very first piece of creative work we did for them. And and I remember them looking at it going, but where the picture of the jeans? And we went, well, no, everybody knows what a pair of jeans is like. We just want to focus on the fact that they're now black, you know, and what black represents. And it was like backwards and forwards and, and they were going, oh, God, we've just hired these people. They're lunatics. And oh, Jesus, what have we done? And, and the copy day was looming, you know. It was in the days when you had to get it printed and we were running out of time because we were already late when we started it. And, and they sort of, in the end, they, they just went, oh, God, we've just got to go with it. So, we, they, so they went with it. And um, it ran. And then they got tremendous response to it. But better than that, um, Robert Haas, who is Levi Strauss's great-great-grandson, saw it, had it framed, oh, wow. put in his office, and said, that's what this company should always be about. And they, they came back after all of this, of course, and said, look, we really did give you a hard time over that. We're going to give you a black sheep <laughs> as a gift, and I've got it still in my office. Yeah, not a real one, you understand? <laughs> okay. but yeah, would have kept eating all the carpet. But it was, and it was, and it was a lovely example of kind of a client coming back and going, "You were right. Yeah, we were completely wrong." And 
here is a kind of gift to say sorry about that. So that was wonderful. That was really great. Yeah. And then that became, in the end, it's an interesting point that, you know, I often say to people when they're talking about creativity, you know, what do you believe in? What's your philosophy? And you've got to get a philosophy. You've got to have a philosophy. You can't just, you don't just do stuff. You believe in something and, and you're putting yourself into your work. And I often say to them, so let your, let your, let your work just be you, you know, put yourself into your work and eventually you will begin to see your philosophy. It'll be coming through your work. You'll realise what you're doing and you'll say, that's very interesting, I seem to do a lot of this or that or whatever it might be. And that happened to us with the, the Black Sheep uh, execution in the sense we, we, we constantly talked about BBH then being a bit of a Black Sheep. And it wasn't till we moved into um, Kingley Street in 1996, so this is now uh, 12, 14 years after we had done the poster. We were moving in, the, uh, uh, the the architect said, so you're not allowed to put a, your name up outside on a big flag, mm. you know, uh, regulations about it, you can't do it, but you can put your logo outside. And we went, well, we're an advertising agency, we don't have a logo. <laughs> um, the meeting was very late, Nigel and I, my partner, Nigel Boga were kind of leaving and we were sort of walking out and saying, wait a minute, we do, don't we? we? We always talk about the black sheep. Yeah, the black sheep's our logo. And that's how it came about. And so we said, that's it. Put the black sheep out, outside. And that then became our logo. So it came out of our work. We didn't sit down yeah. in 1982 and go, hmm, what do we want to be? We want to be the black sheep. Right, yes, let's do that. It emerged. <laughs> yeah. And that's a great lesson in terms of you as a creative person. Let your philosophy, let your belief beliefs emerge from your work mm. your work will tell you how long does that process take then do you think how much, how much work do you well, have to do I don't, you know you can't put a you know you can't measure it like that but but you know my I always start with this by saying you know my definition of create what, what is your definition of creativity and you know because we're all creative you know everybody's creative but what's the definition of it and I think mine's always been it's an expression of self therefore when you're doing your work you're actually expressing who you are. Mm. Even if you're designing a swing ticket from supermarket or a fashion house or whatever it might be, as opposed to a building, or you're yeah. putting yourself into your work. And you hear creative people talk about that. So the, the more you put yourself into the work, the more you'll see yourself come back. Yeah. And that will give you an indication of who and what you are. One thing I know you're particularly strident against is young creatives or anyone creative wearing headphones, for example, when they're walking through the streets. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a bit of a I'm, a I'm a bit of a zealot about certain <laughs> things, you know. I, but, I, but I exaggerate to make a point. I mean, you know, the, the question about that is not so much take headphones off, but but you ha you have to realise that most creative careers last about ten years. They last ten years, and that's where you do your great work. And that's fine if you're in the music business because, you know, as I constantly say, if you're Mick Jagger, you can go around the world singing Jumping Jack Flash and 30,000 people turn up and go, yeah, wow, fantastic. That was written in about 1968. Yeah. If you're in a business like ours or maybe in the film industry or maybe in fashion, you have to come in every day and have a new idea. And that idea can't be like yesterday's idea. I can't repeat what I did in 1968. So the question then is, how do you turn a 10-year career into a 15, 20, 30-year career? 
And one of the things that you have to accept, that one of the first thing you have to understand is that as a creative person, you're a conduit. You know, you're absorbing all this information and you're sending it back out again in a different shape and form. It's infecting your creative work and it's going back out. So if you put your headphones on as you walk around, you're essentially cutting yourself off mm. and you're losing what makes you interesting. You know, I always think great creative people are observers. They just watch yeah, and, and they, they, they sort of reinterpret it and bring it back in another shape or form. So, you know, that's my first thing is please take it. But I mean it in symbolically, you know, please take the headphones off, walk around, look at people, see what they're doing, you know, notice something and it'll go into your work. You know, I've always wanted to do a little presentation on all the work I've done of, of the incidents that have happened to me that have gone into my work, that yeah. I've put actually into my what, work. What, real life? Kind yeah, of real life incidents. There was a wonderful, I didn't write it, I was a creative director on it for commercial we did for Club Med. And, um, and it's about a guy and the, the whole idea of Club Med was that when you go on holiday, it isn't about two weeks, that two week holiday should last for the, the other 50 weeks. Mm. So it, it should infect your life. And we did a guy who'd obviously been on a Club Med holiday, came back and he was trying to engage with people as he walked through New York. And um, we didn't know quite how to end it. And everybody else thinks he's mad. Yeah. But in fact, you know, it, it, the line was, is he mad or is everyone else? And the last shot is a little kid in Central Parks as a, his little sailboat is becalmed in the middle of the park. And the guy just looks at the kid, the kid looks at him and the guy walks in to the water, takes the, his little sailboat out and gives it back to him. And that actually happened to me when I was about five <laughs> in Hampstead Ponds. <laughs> wow, and that man was your hero. Presumably. That man was my hero. There we go. He did, he just walked in. My boat was there. I was there looking at my boat and I couldn't get it back out. And uh, he just looked at me and said, it's your boat, isn't it? I said, yeah. And he just walked in and got it out. I think he was probably pissed, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, so it goes into your work. There are lots of things like that. Yeah. And people talk about it. You talk about, you know, writers like Alan Bennett talk about how they observe or how things in, in their life go into their work. Mm. I mean, a lot of your work is sort of, you know, they often say, is it autobiographical? And people go, well, bits of it are. You know? Yeah. And how, how important is it to be able to work with other people? You've obviously got to be sure in your head of what you like, but do you have to listen to a lot of criticism and have people around you who challenge you the whole time? You do. I mean, it's one of the things you've got to become very resilient at. Uh, and it's a big question. How do, you, how do you survive criticism? How do you survive, you know, everybody wanting to make everything ordinary? Because in a sense, that's what happens often. You know, you, you, you present an idea and people often go, oh, that's different. And you go, yeah, I've really worked hard to do that. Uh, so you've got to resist that. And, and it's a skill you have to develop. Who do you listen to? Who do you not listen to? How do you, how do you not listen without becoming arrogant? You know, and I, I talk about the importance of ego. Mm. You know, ego is fundamentally important to a creative person. You know, it's who you are. Ego is I. Mm. I believe in this. Well, if you don't believe in anything, what the hell are you doing in a creative business? You know, you, you've got to sort of believe in something and have the conviction in that, in that belief to carry it forward. Yeah. And if you don't believe in something, well, what's the point? Now, you've got to be careful that that doesn't blend into hubris. And hubris right. is me. So there's a difference between that. I, me. Um, so it, it's crucial that you have people you can listen to and respect and you have to sort 
you have to seek those out. And of yeah. course, the danger is as you become more famous, as you become more elevated, you know, you get described as a guru and as a genius. Mm. And of course, it goes to your head. And then all of a sudden, nobody dares question you anymore and you're producing crap. Right. Do people still question you then? I hope so. I mean, I realise it's quite hard for them. You know, it's like that old joke, who's going to go in and tell Hegarty that's a piece of shit? <laughs> but, you know, I've used my partners for that. Nigel okay. and, and previously John Bart were very good at What if a junior copywriter came into your office and said, I think this is rubbish? I'd listen to it. I would. <laughs> yeah. I'd case. just say, why do you think it's rubbish? Yeah. You know, and ask them why. And, uh, you know, you... you you have to first of all. I have to respect somebody who had the courage to come in and do that. But then, you don't. You just go now. Tell me why you think it's rubbish. And if they could give you a very cogent reason for it, you go. Yeah, that's a possibility. That's worth thinking about. You know. And of course, advertising is a commercial business, and you've yeah. got to please the client, and you've got to sell product. So, have there ever been moments when you're so sure a piece of work is good, but the client? has hated it and it's ended up never getting made or changing beyond recognition? Oh, that happens all the time. I mean, you, you know, you're convinced by something and you haven't been able to convince your client. Right. Um, you know, a piece of work that we did for Levi's, which actually, in fact, in the end did get made, but was a real struggle for me to get made, was um, the Flat Eric campaign, which course, we did, wow. which followed all the great iconic 501 ads. And... and um, you know, we were looking for a new hero and everybody thought, well, we can't go on doing these solitary heroes. We've got to move it on. And they talked about, kind of, well, maybe it's a partnership. Maybe, you know, and somebody read some stupid piece of research that said, you know, it's about people working together and stuff like that. And you go, yeah, fine, that could be interesting. And uh, we were looking at the work and I just thought it was all very boring. And then um, uh, the producer on the work at the time, Philippa Crane, had shown me this little puppet uh, by this director. And I thought, that's sort of vaguely interesting. Anyway, it just lodged into my brain. And then when we were struggling with this and we were looking at it, and I thought, wait a minute, maybe it is a partnership, but it, the partnership is two people on the road. It's Jack Kerouac. You know, mm. it's like that, you know, that discovering America and all that. But one of them's a yellow fluffy puppet and I, I got the team to write it up and I sort of you know essentially kind of you know said this is what we should do and um, presented it to everybody in the agency who first of all said are you sure John <laughs> they were looking at me that are you sure I said no it could be really 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 good because I could see it as being funny and I could see the wit in it and uh, anyway so we eventually had to go to the client and sell it to the client. And of course, what I did in, in trying to sell it was I, I talked about, you know, the, the, this, this is the, the inspiration for this is Kerouac, it's on the road, it's um, the two great iconic figures, they're traveling around America, and I could see the like, oh yeah, this is great, that. And anyway, got them really excited, and I saw the script could be sort of roughly around this, you know, da, da, da. they said, no, we really love this job. And uh, I said, right, so there's just one thing I haven't told you. What do you mean? And I said, well, one of them is a yellow fluffy puppet. And they did think I'd gone mad then. They said, no, no. And uh, I had to go back three times. But eventually, to their credit, they bought it. Yeah. And it was a huge success. 
that takes remarkable self-belief to, to plough on when everyone, even on your side, thinks you might be going mad. I did, yeah. I, I remember the, 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 um, the wonderful, lovely Emma Cookson, who is the account director on the account. Emma, very, very smart. Very, I remember coming into my office sitting down and said, John, I, I just have to understand something. Are you really sure? And I said, yeah. Of course, inside you're going... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I may be wrong. You know. um, but unless you're daring, unless you're trying to be different, you'll never do anything great. And uh, But I, I think that comes with the territory. I think you just have to accept that. Yeah. You, know, you have to accept that you are going to make mistakes. And if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not pushing the edges of the envelope. So yeah. you've got to do that. But in a way, I've always found that if you use humour, it, it helps and saves you. My biggest regret with that campaign, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to take back pages, the back covers of things like Vogue and that, and have Flat Eric on the back, you yeah. know, instead of a Giorgio Armani kind of cool looking model. I always just thought Flat Eric was just Levi's. Wouldn't it be great? It would have been fantastic. That was my real regret. I said to no. And also when you do get the back pages of Vogue and Harper's and all those great cool groovy magazines and just have Flat Eric on the back. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it? It's been great. Anyway. So Flat Eric was one of the, the hits, that one worked out. Mm. Were there any out there ideas that were real misses? Oh yeah. But I think, you know, I've always said to creative people, don't dwell on your failures. Okay. No, there's no point that you learn nothing from your failures. Is that true? People always say you learn a lot more from no. your failures than your, your victories. Not if you're doing what we're doing. If you're a creative person, if you're desperately trying to break new ground, mm. you're trying to do something different. The danger, if you kind of go, I've done something, it completely failed, and then you try and analyse the failure, all you're doing is you're doing, well, who knows why it failed? There yeah. could be a thousand reasons why it failed. You know, your casting was wrong, timing was wrong, script wasn't as funny as it could have been. Or, you know, could be any of those things. And what the danger is, it saps your confidence. Yeah. And the one thing you've got to have is maintain your confidence. Now, obviously, if you're working in as a research scientist on something, failures, you learn something from. Or if you're doing something formulaic, you will learn from your failures as you move forward. But when you're trying to create something from nothing and you're trying to do something incredibly new, then if you dwell on the failure, it will, you know, yeah. it will sap your confidence. I think film directors have this. You know, you film director makes a great movie, they get applauded, you are a genius, you know, you get all the money in the world to make your next movie. It's a flop. Now what does that film director do? Do they go oh, I better go back to what I did before. Or do they go, look, just forget it, move on. Yeah. And you've got, I think, personally, I think that's what you have to do. One of the big transferable skills from advertising to almost any industry is probably the pitch, which you've touched on a few times. Mm. Have you got the pitch nailed down? Are you, have you got a formula for convincing people? <laughs> well, you think you have a formula and then it gets blown apart, <laughs> right. you know. I mean, I, I, I think a pitch is a performance. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, what you've got to do, the brilliant... I mean, the thing about a, a great pitch is to make the person join in with the vision. Because what you're doing is you're, you're pitching a vision, really. Mm. You know, you're not pitching a piece of work because most clients, I don't know, is that great? Is it not? I've got no idea. Um, so what you've got to try and do is you've got to try and pitch them a vision for their business. This is where the business could go. This is what it could do. This is what this could uh, do to help deliver real results for you and talk to them I mean the great skill when you're pitching is to talk to somebody in their terms 
and I see people fail all the time when they 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 constantly talk in their terms when they're selling an idea as opposed to talking in the terms of the person you're selling it yeah. to uh, and that's one of the big mistakes but a pitch is always a to a certain extent a journey into the mm. unknown and, and you think you've cracked it and and you haven't I always remember it was virtually the last pitch we ever did, creative pitch we ever did at TBWA. We were pitching for Golden Wonder, the crisps. And, um, and it was all about freshness. And, and the way we talked about freshness was with noise. So the noisier a crisp, mm. the kind of fresher it is because it's, you know. And uh, we did a whole lot of work around that. And we did the final poster. We did a big 48-sheet poster with an empty packet of Golden Wonder crisps. And it just said, silence is golden. <laughs> And we thought, oh, that's brilliant. And we presented it, and the main client went, well, that's the best piece of creative work I've ever seen. That is absolutely fantastic. And we thought, well, we won this, and we were having lunch with them, and they were going on to JWT. Went to JWT and gave them the business. Wow. <laughs> Even though the client said, it's the best piece of creative work I've ever seen. You know, so, you know, you never know. You never okay. know. It is, again, journey into the unknown. But you've got to be true to yourself. Whatever you're doing, true to yourself. And people feel that when you're selling something. If you genuinely believe in it, yeah. they feel that. And they can, well, at least they believe it. You know. I want to talk about the state of advertising now because there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom around. And before I was a writer, I worked for a tiny amount of my time as a copywriter. In fact, at TBWA. Ah. Um, but when I was there, there was kind of a sense that the golden days were over. Um, and the fun had left. Is that is that true, do you think, or is that all doom and gloom? Well, I think it, there is an element of doom and gloom. There is an element of reality about it. I think when... I mean, the problem that we have is that when an amazing piece of technology appears, you know, it, 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 it disrupts everything. So here you are, you've got a thing called digital. It changes the way you can communicate with people, how you communicate with them, don't know. Um, and it And it just throws everything up in the air and I think we are going through that and I think we'll come out of the other side of that when people begin to understand a little bit more about how digital really works you know is content that good mm. is it creating the results I want it to create um, and once that happens then I think we will get back to another wonderful golden era um, because in the end you know the way to look at that question is what do brands need not, you know, we all keep looking at it from a point of view of advertising. We'll forget that for a moment. What do brands need? Brands need brilliant, competitive ideas, ideas that stand out, that elevate the status of that company in the marketplace and getting people to notice and see it. That's really it. Yeah. Now, that is more relevant today than it even was in the golden days because there's more competition there are more clients out there there are more brands out there there's more competition for my eyeballs and everything like that so eyeball space so you know the need for greater creativity is there brands need it and what we've got to do is make you know uh, the industry understand that's what it's got to be delivering yeah and so i remain an optimist as i've said i'm, I'm cursed as an optimist but you know you've got to understand that the sense of, you know, disruption, which is a cool and groovy word that we're going through right now, it always goes through when, when you know, I always talk about a creative deficit when an amazing piece of technology comes along. And my, you know, I did, I did this talk called Can You Name Gutenberg's Second Book? 
Now, Gutenberg was the Sergey Brin, Larry Page, Steve Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs of his day. Mm. I mean, revolutionised communication. Printing press, movable type. My God, you know, it was amazing. But he was a technologist, and he did one book. It was the Bible. And it, it, there are reasons why, actually, but it makes for a good story. <laughs> but in a way, it wasn't until creative people came back and said well actually you know with a book you could do all kinds of things you could maybe write a story yeah. oh wait a minute we'll create the novel and all of a sudden the publishing industry is born and this happens again and again so you get you know the Lumio brothers give up on the moving camera they invent the moving camera didn't realise they invented a thing called Hollywood didn't you know so went back to photography um, you know, Les Paul is in the Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not because he wrote any rock and roll, because he invented the electric guitar. And you go, it took about 15 years before somebody went, wait a minute, we could write rock around the clock. And all of a sudden somebody said, you, you know, there's a thing called rock and roll. Yeah. And then people were writing for it. There's a lovely, um, I was, I was, it was a great example of this. I was watching um, great singer Gregory Porter and he was doing his documentaries on singing types of singing styles of singing and he did one on crooning and um, he talked about why did crooners happen the invention of the microphone because I could stand up in front of 2,000 people and I could sing as though I was singing to one person I didn't have to bellow it out yeah so all of a sudden a whole new style of singing emerges now the point about that story is everybody talks about Frank Sinatra but nobody talks about the microphone and that's because in the end, creative people went, wow, you could write totally different songs and create this thing called the crooner. And all of a sudden we're talking about crooners. Yeah. But, and I think we're sort of in that place where people are still talking about the technology. You know, so, you go down to Cannes and it's all about what platform and what media. And you go, well, yeah, it's all very interesting. But actually, what's the idea? Mm. What do you think the, the rock and roll is to... Facebook's electric guitar, if you see what I mean. What, what, what's the idea that they're now going to come up with now they've built the tech? Well, I think in the end it's going to go back to storytelling. I think storytelling is fundamental to our existence. It's fundamental to who we are. It's how we communicate. Um, how humankind, or sapiens as we are, emerged as the dominant, uh, uh, the dominant race. We, we learn storytelling. Uh, and I think it is fundamental to us. And we'll go back to that. Yeah. in all its shapes and forms and you know it'll never go things never quite go back they never go back as they were before because there is more choice mm. and I think that's the other thing that people have to understand you know I came from an industry I was born into an industry where you did a TV commercial a poster a print ad uh, and then radio came along and, you know I I remember radio, commercial radio happening. So it was, it was very limited what you could do. Well, today your, your palette is kind of enormous and you've just got to decide where is it I'm coming into the debate? Where is it I'm going to have, begin a conversation with people? And I, you know, I, I sort of liken that to kind of, you know, principles remain, but practices change. Yeah. And what, uh, we're sitting now in the, uh, the garage in Soho, which is your kind of, Startup incubator, I suppose you'd call it. Is Early there a... stage investment company. Actually, okay. we're not technically an incubator. We don't have the companies within the yeah. building. So, you know. and and what what's the common denominator in all the um, startups that you work with or that you? We don't in? have a. We don't sort of. Um, 
you know, define it in terms of, uh, you know, it's tech or it's in the media world. We, we go, we're quite agnostic. Um, is it an interesting idea? Is it disrupting a current business model? Is it scalable? Is it monetizable? Do you like the people? And I think we've also, we add all kinds of things at moments in time, but we also talk about, is it frictionless? Is it making it easy? Um, and I think in a time-starved world, making things easier to get, easier to get hold of, easier to use, is obviously the future. Yeah. And that's a sort of a continuum. I mean, you could argue the supermarket was, a, was making shopping easier. Now, yeah. of course, you can do it on Amazon. It makes it even easier. You don't have to get out of your bed. <laughs> <laughs> and we spoke before we started recording about um, the, the mantra at Garage. Yeah, which is don't start a business, build a brand. And that's because, you know, in the end, whatever you are as an entrepreneur, whatever business idea you've come up with, whatever bit of technology you've developed, somebody else will copy it or they'll copy your technology. But the thing that you can protect, the thing where value resides is your brand. And so we start from the word go, thinking about yourself as a brand. What is your strategic direction? What do you believe in? How do you differentiate yourself with that brand from the rest of the marketplace? And that's how you'll grow value. Yeah. What are the really strong brands in the startup sphere now that have lots of copycats but have never been toppled? Um, you mean outside in, yeah. in the world at large? Oh God, there are, there are so many of them. I mean, God, you know, I mean, you, you look at things like, you know, Amazon, you look at Netflix, you look at, you know, all of those really, really interesting startups. You know, they're not that old that are dominating our kind of uh, our attention uh, and really really interesting but I mean I think it, 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 it I think where we are today is we're in a world where you know brands possibly will last for a shorter period of time mm. you know you've, I, I think there's some I haven't got the absolute figures but you can go back you know sort of 30 years ago and look at the top 10 companies in the UK and only three of them still exist Wow. Uh, and there, there, it's some frightening figure. I don't know if it's absolutely that, but it really is quite alarming. Um, or you talk to ITV uh, and they say, who are the top advertisers? No, 25 years ago, they would have been, you know, fast moving consumer goods, FMCG as they call them. So food, pines, baked beans, things like that. And now their biggest advertisers are tech companies. Yeah. You know, and, and they are now the big new advertisers. Uh, so it's interesting looking at how brands change. And I think we are in a world where we'll see much greater turnover of brands. They'll maybe last not as long as they did before yeah. because they'll find it very difficult with the pace of change to sustain uh, a change and stay in the consumer's mind. Yeah. And when a new young brand comes in here, uh, or a business, I should say, um, and they've got a great idea, but they don't necessarily have that strong brand. How do you work with them to kind of find their niche, find well, their voice? That's, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, the first thing you have to accept, that they have to accept, is do they think that's important? Yeah. You know, a lot of people do go, no, we don't think that's important. It's about the technology or something like that. And well, you know, we don't need that. And you go, fine, that's, you know, another way of doing business. Off you go. But you have to work with people who, who do value the need for a brand and then you talk about their name is it a great name can we change the name you know is the name really that important oh think? yeah i mean i think it well there are two ways of looking at it <laughs> you know if you were going to have a search engine google is just brilliant yeah isn't it i mean nobody really talks about yahoo anymore 
Um, but on the other hand, I could argue if you're going to, uh, if you can sell a cigarette called a camel, yeah. don't overly worry about it. Now, those are the two sides. You know, it's like what everything in life. Something like Uber, which is a Uber. German word, but yeah. doesn't but it, have anything to do with But it cars. doesn't have anything to do, but it captures your attention, your imagination. So the name has an importance, but don't get overly wound up in it. Um, but, it, you know, there are great examples of brands that, that you know, stand out because they've got a very different name like diesel who'd name a pair of jeans diesel mm. you know but it stands out and now you've got nudie jeans you've got that that define and describe what they're about or for all mankind so you know getting the name to be right i think does give you an advantage it it, it states your philosophy this is what we believe in yeah um you know body shop you know when it came out it kind of captured what they were about. I mean, sadly for them, they didn't evolve and change and you can't just sit back. Um, so a name is important. And if you've got a, you know, uh, a great name, for instance, one of the brands that we're backing and they're now advertising is called Dabble. Uh, and it's about making share, share buying shares for anybody. Yeah. You can just have a Dabble. And it's a brilliant <laughs> yeah, name. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and it defines exactly what they're about. Yeah. You, know, you can you can start at ten pounds. Um, so you know uh, there is a peer to peer lending uh, uh, business that came to us, and they had some funny name, and we said, well, why don't you you call it us? Because it's about us. And that was going back to the origin of peer peer to peer lending, which was you've got some money, that person has a need, you can loan it to them, and you know that they'll give it back to you. Yeah. So we called it us, and it's all about community. It's about us. So you give them a, within that name, you're giving them the beginnings of a brand strategy, a brand you know, philosophy. Yeah. And that kind of shorthands in a very, very, very busy world and a very crowded world, it makes it easier to understand. Yeah. When ideas come to you and businesses come to you, which ones are the most cliched? Which conventions in the startup world would you most like to banish? Um, I think another fashion app. Okay. You know, I really do not need another fashion app. Thank you very much. I think we're overwhelmed with fashion apps. Um, I think when somebody starts with, I've made an app for, you kind of go, oh, God. <laughs> now, actually, what I really want you to do is create an app that makes time go slower. If you can do that, come back and I'll back you. Um, because I think in the end, you're, you're looking at, if it's just an app, it's a process rather than an idea. Yeah. I mean, apps are very important and we want people to develop them, but that's, what's the idea? Uh, and getting people to understand that is crucially important. Yeah. Conversely, what are we what are we kind of missing? What sectors are really undercated for in the startup world? Well, I think the huge growth growth areas in health. Um, it's increasingly something that um, people are concerned about. How do I get good health advice? You know, the NHS is absolutely brilliant, but how do we stay healthier so we don't overwhelm that? How do we get the best out of life? I think is a growing area and it's yeah. going to be very, very influential. Amazing. I want to quickly ask you some of our quick fire questions we Ooh. ask everyone. So hopefully you'll be as honest as possible and we'll get a flavour of John Hegarty, the man, <laughs> not just the <laughs> businessman. Um, but who in the world of business do you most admire? Who do I most admire? God. Um, uh, ah, I, I, Steve Jobs, I did. Yeah, I, I thought he was remarkable. I, I, I thought he was a, an appalling man, but um, a remarkable businessman. But he, he backed his judgment. Yeah. Does creative genius often come with that kind of moral? 
I think it does actually. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I mean, I think uh, I've met a lot of outstanding creative people, and they've often been assholes. Right. Uh, I don't think that is necessarily no. a, a, a part of it, but you know, Picasso wasn't a very nice man. <laughs> um, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Going home. <laughs> but I mean, if you weren't working in, in yeah, creative yeah, advertising, so I'd probably be. Yeah, I, I'd probably be an architect. I love I love architecture. I think um, you know designing kind of structures that affect the way people live and how they live, and you know um, creating a better society through architecture. I think is really interesting. I'd love to be an art director of a city. Actually, wow, be good, wouldn't it? That'd be great. You know, working out how things work, what trees you plant, where you plant yeah, them. The new Milton Keynes. Well, you know, hopefully not the new Milton Keynes. That's just truly awful. I think Milton Keynes is, is actually got a bad rap. Yeah. I think it's interesting. They tried. It's, it's getting better. Yeah, Maybe it, it should have been. True. Yeah, could have been. Um, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Um, I suppose I'm most proud of BBH. You know, creating a company that stood for the best of what advertising could be. Yeah. And I suspect, given your earlier answer, you won't necessarily answer this, but what's the biggest moment of failure you've had? I don't, as I say, I don't dwell on failure. Don't I? I you know, there've been too many. You know, I mean, been, <laughs> well, that's encouraging. In yeah, there've been lots. You know, yeah. why dwell on them? Dwell on, you know, uh, yeah. What's your biggest fear? Uh, I don't have much fear. Nothing to keep you up at three a.m. No, that's no. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and your most treasured possession? Uh, my family. Not your Japanese knife set. Not my Japanese global Japanese knife set that I'm taking home tonight, and I could be arrested for carrying a knife. <laughs> well, that would be exciting. That's the, a fear. I've I'm got sure. the receipt to say. No, I was having them sharpened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, sir. Would you come with me? Yeah. <laughs> um, which book do you most often recommend to people? Ah, oh, that's uh, it. Changes. Um, Funny enough, actually, the book I've been absolutely recommending is *Sapiens* by. Uh, yeah. Harari, just brilliant. It talks about how we, because we are sapiens, how we got to where we got to today. It's just absolutely fantastic. Anybody in the communications industry should definitely read it. The other book I constantly recommend people read is William Goldman's two books, um, Adventures of the Screen Trade and Which Lie Did I Tell? And for a creative person, you'll learn more about how to write for the screen yeah. from Goldman he never talks about advertising for obvious reasons but he talks about how you write stories and how you write for the screen brilliant books and finally I usually ask people what their, their motto is but for this I might say if John Hegarty had a tagline an advertising end line what would it be? well I, well, I do actually have a motto it says do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you brilliant John Hegarty thank you very much my pleasure Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.